0: Keep a CRM often in my phone when I meet somebody, I'll put their name in and then whatever talking points in the notes section that we discussed. Hey, big blank fan or loves this band or saw this or has three kids, whatever it is. And I put that in there and I put the kid's name. Hey, how's so-and-so? And they're like, wow, you remember? No, I just looked in the notes, but I paid attention.
1: Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition drive and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How is everybody doing? This is Joseph, host of the Impactful Coaching Podcast. Uh, For those of you who watched the last few videos, you might have noticed that I have taking my own feedback and I'm staring directly into the camera now. There was, there's been a lot of like, "Mm, I'm going to here? so I'm doing my best to work on that. Speaking of eye contact, I'm here today with Corey Saban. Corey, you are, as I understand it, CEO and founder of csmediaworks.com. Have I got that right?
0: You absolutely have that right, Joseph. It's a
1: slice to to talk to you today because your history in what I would refer to as classic media, uh, traditional media, mainstream media, has given you an an experience as an interviewer that, frankly, I don't have, and I don't know if I'm ever going to make that transition into it. Statistically speaking, a lot of people start off in mainstream media and make their way into, like, hosting a Twitter show or something like that. So, I don't know if it's going to go both ways, but I definitely am looking forward to hearing about some of that experience and some of the work that you do in the coaching space. Uh, But would you kindly start it off, start us off by just you know, telling us what you do, what you're up to these days.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it, Joseph. And thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, you definitely want to look at the camera, make eye contact. That's the last thing you want to do is be this guy who looks like he's watching a tennis match. <laughs> so what I do is I work with clients on corporate storytelling, helping them find their story, helping them understand their why factor so that people respond to their brand because people move on emotion, not facts. I like to say that facts tell, story sell. So I do corporate storytelling. I also help people a great deal with public speaking. Uh, So often they don't realize the value of public speaking and telling that story because it goes hand in hand because that's what leaders are about. People look at leaders and they want them to be able to communicate effectively, to really resonate with their audience, to drive change. And lastly, uh, beyond a little bit of marketing here and there, I focus on crisis management, helping people understand that no comment kills and to tell their version of events to be honest, authentic, and speak with one voice.
1: Hey, just to prime the audience, the the concept of crisis management, aside from it being something that we haven't had a chance to talk about on the program, it's... It's enticing to talk about. So I'm I'm definitely looking forward to uh, diving into that. We do talk to a a lot of coaches. And and I think what a lot of coaches have to work out in their own heads is, what is exactly my unique position in, in this market? So I think some of this does have to do with where you came from and how your unique experience informs the way that you position yourself in the market. But take me through how you were trying to figure out exactly how you want to offer your services when, you know, there is a fair amount of competition. Some of which I've talked to.
0: Absolutely. No, great question. Thank you. You know, I like to say we all have a gift and the key is not to betray your gift. I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. Like, for example, I knew that I would not be an accountant because I'm terrible at math, so that's not for me. But what am I great at? I'm great at teaching i'm great at telling stories i'm great at teaching people how to tell stories speak and i'm one of these people that can see things from both sides as you've alluded to earlier my background in traditional media uh it was not so much where you would have a talk show host screaming at people it was you know what joseph makes this point but mike makes this point it's my job to share both of those sides allot them each their 30 seconds so we have a compelling 60-second story and hope the audience is smart enough to make an informed decision. So that's how I was able to identify my strengths by realizing, hey, what have I done for 15 plus years? What am I good at? How can I help people? And so often when you're starting out in business, you're just looking to make a buck. And someone will come and say, can you do this? But you realize that, yeah, the payday is pretty good, but that's out of my lane. and. You don't jump at those opportunities because then you're not being authentic and you're not going to be providing the best work. So don't let the money motivate you to jump out of your lane and do something that you may not be 100% at, like you alluded to. There's other coaches that can do that. So don't be afraid to build your network, chat with those coaches, chat with those other leaders, and say, hey, look, what is your strength? What can I refer you? Because if you're giving away business to people, People will feel better about you, number one. And the idea is, number two, maybe they'll reciprocate.
1: Mm -hmm. What I'd like to hear about is if the realization of your gifts was a singular eureka moment or if it was like a small amount of clues that built up. So how did you really discover what your gift was and then make your way into uh, into your profession?
0: Confidence and what I like to call stick time. And what I mean by stick time is a pilot needs a certain amount of hours. Well, you're not just going to hop in that plane and be able to do loop the loops. It takes 10,000 plus hours, as the book alludes to. So the idea for me was I started off just like anybody, not confident, not sure of what I was doing. Am I doing it right? As if there was a formula or an assembly line for doing interviews. And I would pretend to be somebody else, even though. Uh, that person wasn't pretending being me uh and then eventually over the years i found my own voice and i found my own style and you'd mess around with tweaking it or changing it but then all of a sudden something just clicked and it felt right and i said you know what this is me this is what i'm good at this is my approach and one of the words that i would describe me with is empathetic so i approach things with empathy and knowing that i'm empathetic and compassionate that's how I approach things as opposed to other people who might come at you like a bull in a china shop. so that's not me so that's how I was able to identify and you know that's what guides my decision making
1: well, I have a fair amount of experience with some people who like to uh, charge directly and uh, head for head first uh, horns uh, directed at my chest so I, I, I know that feeling it's nice yeah. to not always have to encounter that. This is the first time that I have seen the term corporate storytelling, although it's probably not the first time I've I've experienced it or or discussed about it. This is just the first time that I've really seen that particular term. And and I think it's a interesting duality because on the one hand, storytelling is the essence of the human experience. It, It doesn't get much more emotional than that. But I don't necessarily give that same description to a corporation. A corporation does come across as more, more sterile and more uh, more goals driven. And I'm and I'm being polite here, but I think you understand what I'm getting at with this. So my question too is, you know, how are you helping speakers find that autist- authenticity in the story while meeting the prerequisites of an entity concerned with things like ROI? Oh,
0: great question. Thank you. Well, I hard think on that one. think about why you do things. You move on emotion. For example, if you walk into a car dealership, maybe you've got a budget for a BMW 3, but what do they put in the lobby? The BMW 7, and they leave the door open and the window down hoping you'll sit in it so that you could tell yourself a story and say, you know what, if I yank the kids out of daycare and I stop making my college payments, uh, you know, I can have this car. Well, many of the corporations that you do business with have devoted fans, raving fans. Think about Apple. Many people that buy Apple products are dedicated to Apple. Apple sees things differently. That's part of their mission. That's their story. They didn't say when the iPod come out came out 15 gigabytes of music, they said a thousand songs in your pocket. Think about Nike. They're not selling you a shoe or an attitude. Nike backwards is keen and they're storytellers. They're selling you an attitude. Just do it. Success, perseverance, determination. Southwest. Selling you that feeling of fun up in the air as opposed to so sterile. We'll sit back, relax, uh, you know, it's all say, hey, if you don't know how to use a seatbelt by now, we've got issues. (laughs) So make it fun. Yes, they're concerned about the ROI. So when you're working with a CEO or someone from the corporation, whether it be large, small, midsize, whatever it may be, what's their story? You have to sit down and say, what's your why? What motivates you? And then you ask, what do you think your team thinks of you? So I was just talking with a gentleman prior to this who runs a fairly large corporation and culture is the number one thing they are focused on. Culture, 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 realizing that there's five generations in the workforce and the baby boomer is going to move differently than the Gen Zer and they want different things. So it's making sure that, hey, there's work-life balance, making sure that the company stands for something and has values outside, as you alluded to, ROI, but making a difference in the community. Community impact days where maybe they're cleaning the beaches, where they're going out and filling backpacks for kids, whatever it may be because everybody's gonna feel something different. But most importantly, what happens is when you're a corporation, you're working in silos. So it gets Joseph from over here in this department together with Jenny, who's in this department, and they get an opportunity to do something side by side to collaborate on a shared purpose that makes a difference, that creates a feeling that centers around the entity that put it together. And if there's a face with a name, that's even more powerful for those employees. So there's a story there. It's not all about profits, it's about people before profits.
1: It's funny that you said, uh, Jenny, because you're just pulling an, uh, a name out of thin air, but that is the name of my partner. So, I mean, you had like a one in 100,000 chance again in the name and you, you got that one, so that's
0: impressive. Yes, yes, thank you, Seth. <laughs>
1: uh, for those of you, okay, I told him uh, prior to recording that I like being called Seth um, uh, online, and game and stuff like that. Do you have a, do you have a nickname, by the way, is, was there ever like a,
0: Oh, a, a calling sign
1: uh, or anything that ever stuck with you
0: uh no uh, a couple of my buddies uh might call me sea dog not that that means anything uh but that's about it or sabin's my last name they'd say sabon mm. uh but other than that, no nothing really well i mean I if you were in france when they were saying that i
1: can understand
0: yeah so yeah i don't have one uh, i'll answer to about anything so you're yeah. good
1: the closest thing that I can think of just off the top of my head, uh, same I don't know, Sabre. It's, it's not bad. I would, if I were, if I were okay. in your, your rose and I had to pick an online name, I would go with Sabre. Okay. okay. So what, what stuck out to me with your answer is that you're describing that uh, the, the audience is engaged in that authentic way. And and I will give Apple credit that, you know, having tried to apply for their jobs and seeing and being part of this massive interviewing thing is that they, they mean what they say. So, my question does come from a place of millennial cynicism. Uh, so, I'm, you know, I'm happy to be wrong about this, but have you worked with a client who had to deal with an audience who wasn't buying it, who just felt like you guys are just trying to tell a story for the sake of story? You guys are just trying to follow data and having to kind of like, Earn the audience's respect you ever had to deal with a situation like that.
0: You're absolutely right And it's not just millennial cynicism. It's cynicism overall when a Mm -hmm. person is not being authentic and they're standing up there and just reading a statement You can see through that. We're pretty smart people What do we love to do though in America? We love to build somebody up Then when they do something wrong, we love to knock them down And then after that pittance we love to build them back up again And that's when it's important That that person show empathy, be authentic, and be honest about the mistakes they've made. Have I worked with people that haven't been able to do that? Yes. Is it painful? 100%. Because you try to explain to them, hey, you're not coming across as real. Do you believe what you're saying? And sometimes they'll say, no, they're just doing it because this is what they have to do. Mm -hmm. And that's hurtful. Uh, Whereas most others will say, hey, this is what I'm doing and here's why. So that's a challenge and you try to work through it and it only makes the the work harder for everybody else. Mm -hmm. If you start to lie, if you most people, the first reaction is they'll bury their head in the sand. It'll just go away. Well, when you bury your head in the sand, there's a body part that sticks out and that's what you end up looking like. And then the other aspect is no comment and traditional media will say we tried to reach so-and-so company X and they had no comment and right away people assume guilt. So what media will do whether it be digital or traditional is they'll tell a story and they'll find the person who was harmed by said product or by company and build up that character that had to deal with that issue and tell the story through their eyes. And then you hope that the person on the other side, the company, the individual, whatever it may be, tells their side, but often, it's not the case. So then they'll say no comment or bury their head. And that's when they look even worse. So when you're working with a company that does that, or is not authentic in their response, and they put profits over people, there's a detriment mm-hmm. that lingers.
1: Mm-hmm. And. The next thing that I want to do is I, I want to hear about your experience uh, in in traditional media, and then we'll, we'll sure. get into the the crisis management. So just so everyone knows this is how the, the the layout for the episode. But just to get the the uh, the other side of that too, it's I think it's pretty well known that when you're and I, this is kind of coming off the heels of my last conversation and just talking about um, uh, complaints management in uh, NHS, which is. The people who are at their lowest point, whether they're customers or it's sort of like the audience as a collective entity, when they're at their lowest point, working with them and working through that issue they can become your best advocates and they and there's that transformative process where your your worst part of it becomes uh, the best part of it and i think some of this is going to tie into the crisis management discussion so the other side of the question is have you had the chance to work with people and really seen that transformative process where they go from antagonizers to ambassadors
0: it's amazing when you see that process that transformation is powerful It's amazing. And when you see it and you're around somebody, it almost gives you goosebumps because you feel it and you can feel their sincerity. And that is incredibly amazing to watch, to witness and to be part of. And yeah, there's been numerous times where they had that aha moment and they didn't realize until you brought up to them, hey, here's how this will look if we follow this path. And then they say, oh, wow. I didn't realize it'll be that bad or that I hurt these people or I just meant it as this. Yes, it's really important. And then what do people want overall when you're upsetting somebody and you had alluded to the people who complain in the beginning? What do they want? People complain because they want to feel heard, they mm-hmm. want to feel validated. And so often and you probably see it every day uh, or whenever you travel check into a hotel. And what happens? Uh, the guy next door, his room, his TV's running all night or the toilets running all night. And they'll say, how was your stay? All perky. <laughs> and you'll say, well, I didn't really sleep so well. Well, why not, sir? The toilet was running all night. I'm so sorry, sir. Did you call down? Well, no, it was one in the morning. I didn't think anybody would respond and I just wanted to sleep. Oh, okay. And then they just go on and they're clicking the keys, hand her you your folio and say, we hope to see you again. As opposed to, I'm so sorry that happened. I know that you didn't call down. And I understand that you're probably frustrated and exhausted. So here's a voucher. Go over to the cafe, have some breakfast, get some coffee today. Or let me comp your parking. Or let me make sure we do this right. Because now they've lost the customer forever. As opposed to doing what's right to really create a relationship. And that's a simple example we can all relate to.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been there. Although I've noticed... I would give this a time period of about the last four to six years. What I would describe as Karen culture, where we have all these video clips online of people going out of the way to complain about the the tiniest things. And what I think it's done is that it's disincentivized people who are facing a fair grievance as paying customers and as as patronizers of business to feel reluctant to complain because oh, we don't want to come across as as a Karen. We don't want to come across as and by the way sorry to all the Karens out there you guys really got the it got dealt a bad hand. But the idea that people are reluctant to um, complain and realizing that there's a professionalism to being a customer, we're stakeholders, we're not we could be investors but we're probably not. We have an onus to also improve the business, too, because if I have an issue with something, just like if I go to a restaurant, I'm not happy with the burger, I say nothing. There's 12 other people, 50 other people who aren't going to enjoy it either when I could have saved that business some some long-term grief by just saying, hey, look, this was an issue. So I'll give you an example because this is just – it popped into my head organically – and I could be coy about what business I'm talking about, but I think it's going to be pretty easy to put the clues together. It's a large electronics chain, uh, the known for the color blue. All right. I just gave it away <laughs> and uh, and, I, I, and I go to, <laughs> I go to them, uh, and uh, in, to have my laptop uh, fixed up uh, while I'm away on a wedding, I come back, the laptop is bricked, just, just gone. And, I I learned that day you were talking about uh, uh, discovering our gifts. Well, my my gift as an Italian is that it turns out that when we're angry, the the hands really do come out. Like I didn't realize it until I was on the subway home. That man, I really did that, and I didn't just want money back. I came in, I visited twice. The second time I visited, I said, "Listen, guys." let me work with you on this. we can go through the process, discover where was the miscommunication and maybe find out which one of you killed my computer. <laughs> and, and they said, well, there, there's limits to how far this is gonna go, but frankly, this doesn't happen. I said, are you sure? Are you sure it doesn't happen? Because this is a computer's repair. This is a consumer level computer repair. For all you know, this is happening all the time. and The consumers just don't know any better because you have people who aren't either tech illiterate or just don't have the time or for whatever reason. And so I think that was the moment where they realized, oh, crap, maybe we have been breaking a bunch of people's computers and just passing it off on the customers. You got to talk about it. You you know, we want the businesses to get better because we need to be served better.
0: You're absolutely right. You have to talk about it. Now, let me ask you, how did you feel when you left there? And they said, well, there are only certain limits to help you. Your hands went up and you were angry.
1: (laughs) I was calm on on, on act two. Uh, I only lost my temper in act one. But I... If, if if I didn't make that what I assume was a breakthrough, I would have felt pretty bad. I would have felt like, well, I'm trying to, to do better here. I'm trying to show professionalism just as an individual. And yeah, I would have been pretty irritated about that. But because I think I made a point that they weren't expecting, I can walk away feeling like, okay, that was at least the seed of something that might manifest later down the line. So. I'll take that, and then they gave me free computer chairs afterwards. So, uh, you know, I'm overall pretty happy with the uh, with the experience, and I continued to shop there, partially because I have very little other options. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I'm still happy to be there after uh, after all that was said and done.
0: But we've all had a situation like that, and it seems like they handled it well. They came full circle, um, and they gave you something for your time. Now you had alluded to those Karen's earlier. That'll probably just blow up and lose it because people handle things very differently. That just becomes an issue where they go from zero to 100 too quickly, and they're not going to get anything except tossed out or maybe arrested. However, it all comes down to customer service. Ask people their names right away. Why does Starbucks such a brilliant place? The coffee isn't the best, but right away they'll say, hey Joseph, what do you have today? Mm -hmm. You know, because they've looked at your app. Oh, you know, he's gonna have a latte. Great, Joseph, latte, hey, have a great day. Right away they've identified you by your name. Talk to people about themselves and they will listen for hours. Remember, keep a CRM often in my phone. When I meet somebody, I'll put their name in and then whatever talking points in the notes section that we discussed. Hey, big blank fan or loves this band or saw this or has three kids, whatever it is. And I put that in there and I put the kid's name. Hey, how's so-and-so? And they're like, wow, you remembered. No, I just looked in the notes, but I paid attention. So active listening is really something. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Mm -hmm. So it's active listening. And then you mirror what someone had to say. Hey, Joseph, I understand you're upset. Yeah, you're damn right. I'm upset. I brought the computer in and you bricked it. You're saying we bricked it. So let's try to figure out how we came to that and how that happened. Mm -hmm. So and it's just going through that to make sure that you're heard as opposed to the first thing that people do is, no, I didn't. And all you heard was no, and then it becomes about.
1: that was what happened in Act one. that's why my uh, my inner Italian got left out that's got really let not out. Not yeah, right exactly. Out. Yes. Um, and you know you said uh, t- two ears and one mouth, and I think that's a brilliant metaphor, but what I would add on to that too is we also have two eyes to read body language and in Correct. some circumstances we have noses to determine when something has really gone wrong. But, so you know we have a lot of uh, input and only one method of output.
0: Well, it's interesting you said that because 93% of all communication is nonverbal. Think about it, the guy Mm -hmm. walks into the room or a person walks into the room and you're judging them right away. It's just you can't articulate it as quickly, but your brain's already made an assumption. Like people tuning in are like, who's this bald guy with the glasses I'm listening to? And they've made an assumption and maybe they'll listen a bit longer and say, oh, I like him or I don't like him, whatever it may be. But people make assumptions and we're judging books by their cover so frequently. So it's the importance of body language. It's the importance of speaking correctly when you're up in front of the audience, using your hands the right way, standing Mm -hmm. up straight, not hiding behind the podium, walking and talking, using your voice. So there's intonation and there's pauses so that the other person can digest information. And all of those things matter because people are judging. So never forget that. It's people will remember people. What is it? People will forget what you say, but they'll never forget how you made them feel.
1: Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna just like full on shift gears here, just you know, in the interest Rarely of uh, like. time management. So I, I'm, I'm, am dying to hear about like what was your uh, experience working a, as a reporter. Um, I don't get to talk to too mm-hmm. many uh, people in the space. I've talked to one guy named Stephen Pope. It just like three years ago. So I just, just love to take me through uh, what got you into it. You were working at a, some pretty pivotal times in, 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 well, especially Western history, uh, just to not yeah. be, uh, allu- uh, just to say it was, you were, you were around during nine eleven and like, I, I, don't, I don't I don't want to turn this into like a, what was nine eleven like episode? Cause Lord knows we can do an hour just talking about that. Sure. But I just love to hear about, you know, on a daylight today, what still sticks out to you as your experience in that time?
0: Well, it's interesting. I started my career in sports casting. I wanted to be a sportscaster and I was, covering the Miami, everything in Miami, in Florida, Miami Hurricanes, Miami Dolphins, the Marlins, et cetera, and the Panthers. And during that time, it was quite interesting in Miami sports for sports fans because you had the Dolphins and Dan Marino and Don Shula's final years. And Don Shula was a football legend. And then you had Jimmy Johnson come in from the famed Dallas Cowboys coach. So that was pivotal and exciting. You had the Marlins, this startup team that went and won a World Series. You had the Panthers, a startup team that went to the Stanley Cup playoffs and ended up losing to Colorado. You had the Miami Heat um, that went through a transition of being lovable losers to pretty much revamping their roster and going to a first-class organization, bringing in Pat Riley and some superstars. So there was a great time of transition and an exciting time of sports. Then I got a TV job, and they hadn't fired the sports guy yet. So being a 28-year-old kid, they said, well, we're going to fire the sports guy, but can you do news for the next 30 days? So I'm not going to say no and turn down an opportunity. I said yes. Well, I sucked. You know, I got on the air and treated it like sports. In sports, you can say, hey, Michael Jordan went out tonight, scored 28 points, six rebounds, three assists. In news, you know, I'd get on the air and say, hey, Bill shot Tom. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where's the allegedly? Where's the police say? So I learned how to tell stories and then I got good and then they got rid of the sports guy and I said, you know what, I want to stick with this news thing. Before we get to 9-11, it's every day you're covering different stories. It's ADD theater. One day it's a political rally. One day it's protesters. One day it could be a rock band that you're covering. Whatever it is, murders, shootings, whatever it is, uh, a couple of things stick out to me. Um, The chaos of nine 11. I remember waking up and watching the today show when I and flipping it on and seeing Matt Lauer, uh, anchoring the news and an airplane that just hit the tower. I'm like, as an avid reader, you know, said to myself, that looks like a, maybe an accident, but something more. And then, you know, you started hearing reports and then when the second plane hit, it was like, okay, get up and go to the newsroom. So it's chaos. And that's what you do, news doesn't happen in the newsroom. And no matter where in the country you were covering 9-11, there was a heightened sense of alert at your federal buildings, of course your airports, everywhere else there was this mass panic, for lack of a better term, decisions being made rapidly to shut things down, send out guards, whatever it may be, in every city and no matter what the city, The people killed in that tragedy and the stories of loss impacted the smallest towns, the largest towns, because everybody knew somebody that was either related or had a connection to a firefighter that was injured in the cleanup. Maybe a flight attendant that was on one of the planes. You went as a reporter every day. Oh my goodness. Reflecting on it every moment for like a good few months. And you kind of operated in this fog. And I remember on the one-year anniversary, a few of my colleagues and I were talking, and it was like we started crying. And, and we were like, wow, why are, why are we crying now? It's because we never had the opportunity to grieve. Mm-hmm. We were constantly going, 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 find the next story, find the next thing, find this, find this. And you were grieving, but then it was even harder because now you're doing stories of people when we were in war, in Iraq and Afghanistan after President Bush, you know, decided to put us in war. Now you're knocking on people's doors after they found out that their loved one had passed away in a battle. The Pentagon would just release their names. And as a news reporter, it's one of the hardest things you have to do. You have to knock on people's doors and say, I'm sorry for your loss. Do you want to talk to us? Now, many people will say, as did I, that's thickening. How dare you let these people grieve on their own? I quickly learned after I questioned my boss that people grieve differently. Go see for yourself, she said. And you'd knock on someone's door and they would say, you would say, I'm sorry for your loss. You know, we got word that your son died. We want to tell a story of him being a hero. Some people would slam the door, but others most of the time would say, thank you for that opportunity. And they'd have pictures, and you'd ask them what made him special, and you'd want to really do right by that family to tell that story. But you also have to think, right before 9-11, I covered the 2000 election debacle right here in Florida with the hanging chads and Al Gore and George Bush and that election coming down the less than 800 votes here in the state of Florida and it going to the state Supreme Court. And, of course, our governor was George Bush's brother, Jeb Bush, so that was a pretty wild time, and of course, a space disaster. Um, so there was a lot happening in the in in history, and there's just so much, you know, from 2000, to, you know, on with war, and then prior to that, from 93 to 2008, so much change and this evolution and revolution. If you think about it, from this contemptuousness for Bill Clinton having the affair with Monica Lewinsky to where we ended up uh, with Obama becoming president. So there was a lot of change, evolution. And now you see where we are today with, you know, a lack of bipartisanship, and a lack of trust between both sides and rhetoric that is just painful, harmful, and discerning for everyday citizens who are not on a vocal right or vocal left, but will remain in the middle.
1: Well, I suppose it's lucky for us that uh, the US elections are no longer determined by narrow margins. It's it's a good thing we got past that.
0: We'll see. You know, many (laughs) can argue the electoral college is broken and you should go by the popular vote considering, you know, the last few outcomes. So we have a system that's been really not only broken, but you can see what they've done in certain states, the people in charge. You know, when you win the House and the Senate in your state, you get to do redistricting so you can draw maps and draw people out and or maybe put a clump that was Democratic or Republican here and move them over there. So there's so many things you can do. And, uh, you know, if we were playing a board game like Monopoly and I decided to take all your money, you'd say I was cheating. Well, we try to call it out when our elections. But again, that lack of bipartisanship and working together, we've become. One side's in power, they're going to do this. And then, of course, when the other side becomes in power, they're going to do it. So where's the trust?
1: And at what point did you feel it was time to start transitioning out of it? Or was it another matter of circumstance I said, okay, I I think I can move on to this now?
0: Uh, 2008. 2008, um, the economy was pretty bad. You know, the banks were being bailed out. There was a lot of uncertainty. Housing market was terrible. There was this great deal of fear. Um, these beautiful condos in downtown West Palm Beach, I remember here in Florida, um, that are today selling for a million plus were about 85, dollars $90,000. You could pick those up. So think about the profit you'd make. At that point, I was like, okay, what else do I want to do? Well, I love where I live. Florida's a pretty special place, particularly in the winter. I love where I live. I don't want to move, and the opportunities for me were out of state. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to be in cold weather. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And a woman had said to me, ask me what I'd like to do. And I told her what I'd like to do. I'd like to teach. And I had this idea for what I'm currently doing today. And I'm entrepreneurial. And then she said, have you interviewed everybody you wanted to interview? I said, yeah, everybody but Paul McCartney. And she laughed. And uh, she goes, well, listen, you're pretty talented. And you can do whatever you want. But just know wherever you go, you're going to end up Not just being a reporter or a news anchor, you'll probably have to carry a camera, do some shooting, do this. The industry will change and you'll probably be the first guy they let go. So she goes, My advice would be don't be an understudy in your own life. And I let that resonate. And then a few weeks later, I was standing out in the rain during a hurricane, Um, telling people not to come out to where I was. And sure enough, they're pulling up. Can you, I'm stuck. Can you get me out? Uh, and I was like, you know what? I've had enough. And I called my uh, general manager and let her know that I was going to give my two weeks. And that was the aha moment for me and the moment of pivot. And it was fear. It was scary and there was change, but it felt good. It felt right. And I don't regret it.
1: Was there anywhere in training that instructed reporters on these like pivotal black swan events prior to, and then afterwards, did the SOPs change to say, Hey, if something like this happens, here's what we're going to do. Be ready for it.
0: Great question. No, there's nothing that prepared you for that. I mean, you're a kid, you know, looking back, I was 30 years old and you're just running and gunning all day for months and nothing prepared me. There was no grief counselors that would come in and talk with us. It was, you know, your gen X, just get up and deal with it, man, you know, figure it out. It wasn't, you know, like other generations, every generation makes fun of the younger generation, etc. Uh, oh no, it it's going both ways. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it was just deal with it, and you know, and that's when I shared with you about a year later. You know, a couple of colleagues around the same age were like, "Holy cow!" You know, this is you're, you're just crying a little bit when you're hearing these stories and the music and everything else. Uh, but no, nothing prepared you for that. There was no training for that. Um, The only thing we were really prepared for i remember was covering a g8 summit and that's when all the world leaders get together and they said be prepared for protesters who may not look like protesters and if you're standing in the park reporting it'll be like this guy's sitting with a kid this guy's over there eating peanuts but then they're all going to converge around you so carry with you this this and this and just you know have your head on the swivel that kind of thing but no nothing really prepared us uh And it went on and on and on, you know, just telling the stories of the firefighters. And even today, firefighters that have issues with breathing because of working on the pile. So it just continues and it's horrific. But it just brings back memories when you see people that were so heroic that went in there and did whatever it took. And then it just breaks your heart to see so often that uh, our leaders forget them.
1: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make a few observations here. And then I want to start asking about the uh, the, the services that you're providing in your current company, just because I want to kind of like uh, decompress this a little bit.
0: By the way, as an interviewer, you don't have to tell me what you're going to do. You could just do it. That's Part of that is
1: also serving the audience, though. It's also just ah, making sure the okay. audience understands well, where I'm going with it. T- I will, I will say there to? there was, I did have an interview, this was years ago, where like I was off topic for a little while. And the guy was like, do you know who I am? And that uh, has sort of like, okay, I, maybe I'm overcorrecting, but you know, uh, I, I, I like, gonna I like the you way it is. I'm going to
0: give you a piece of this. advice as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. I'll give you a piece of advice as an interviewer who's been in that situation. And I didn't mean any offense.
1: No, no, it's, none taken, but listen, I appreciate the feedback. You have a
0: gift believe in yourself, man. And if someone doesn't want to, whatever, I mean, I've interviewed presidents, Pulitzer prize winners, whatever, but what's the one thing we all have in common. We all put our pants one leg at a time. Mm-hmm. And if someone's going to be a jerk, that's just who they are. Let it go.
1: You, you, you make a great point. Although I will say, I still like what I, what I do in terms of just like priming people for what to expect. Sure. I like doing it. Prime, so
0: prime yeah. me away.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to make a, this is, I, this, I, I, can, I guarantee you no one's made this this observation to you before, but uh, I'm a gamer, and gamings have certainly evolved, and they've become a little bit less like Pong, a little bit more like virtual reality, and the the Call of Duty series does gets a lot of flack in the gaming space, but it also gets a lot of credit for depicting events that other series won't depict, and one of them is actually the fallout of a nuclear warhead going off, and your character, who prior to is heroically trying to stop it doesn't make it and the last moments of the character which you're playing in first person are just like walking trying to get away from the blast radius and uh, he and he passes and i remember taking that in just as a player thinking like that was really something to to sit and, and think about and that's what great media does and I would hope that in the future as virtual reality becomes more accessible, that these moments, while they're not going to be fun to experience, it would still be worth depicting just to give newer generations a chance to experience what these moments were like. Things like Pearl Harbor, things like nine eleven. Um maybe even someday we'll go back and we'll see like what what it was like to live COVID. So I, I would hope to see that in the future, these, these moments will ha- continue to have the respect they deserve lest we forget about them and then... God forbid, repeat them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I remember when the game first came out and there's news stories. Oh, the game is dangerous and it's this, that, and the other and uh, I laugh at your Pong reference because I remember the excitement of having that game and then how it evolved to uh, miss Pac-Man, which a game I liked and Pac-Man, etc. and Galaga. Uh, and then you play today, and all you wanted was those you know amazing graphics that your generation gets to grow up with, whereas mine had a stick figure, and you were like, "Wow, this is amazing, look at pitfall Harry, You know there's a couple of ways to spin it, and I appreciate that uh you know the other thing I thought of was a nuclear war is I think about my parents' generation and if you watch videos of the sixties, uh you know the kids in the schools to prepare for a nuclear war, they'd sit under the desk and I'm like, What the heck were they thinking? Like, what is that gonna do Oh, They can't get me here." you know it's such foolishness i can see i can see both sides of that why it's important and maybe you want to relive it and what it's about what it feels like and i can see it serving as a lesson for a gamer like yourself and maybe your peers to hey it's important that we experience this so we don't make the same mistake or make a mistake like other generations did or allow us to get this far and then you're always going to get the person who is nefarious and says but world domination that's what i want to do i want to blow up the world it's all going to be mine and because i hate my teacher in school i'm going to do it to everybody else whatever it may be so yeah i have no issue with it and that's an interesting observation um i've not played the game personally uh haven't had time frankly but i've seen other people play it um and it's very realistic and you know i can appreciate the graphics and i can appreciate you know kids or in adults that want to play it so i'm not one of those judgy people because i remember when i was a kid uh it was tipper gore who came out and said well you can't listen to rap music and we need to put a label on it and all of a sudden you know it becomes rated r and you're like well wait a second that's you know you're shutting this person up but that's art and art is subjective mm-hmm. so yeah who am i to label somebody until you know mm-hmm. i'm not one of those
1: so with that, you, you offer a number of different services with CS Media Works, uh, Media Facilitator, Leadership and Business Development, I don't have to tell you all of the ones, I'm just telling the audience, Content Marketing, Media Coaching and Crisis Management, which is yes. uh, the last act of this, Corporate Storytelling and per- Presentation Training. So what I'd like to know is which of your services came with you as a evolution of your career up to that point, And then which ones came up organically once you started the platform?
0: Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, I thought you were going to ask me what my favorites were. Uh, Let's see. I mean, you can Most of them came with me. Uh, My favorite is like, for example, uh, you get some, say I'm working with you. There's a guy who's smart, who is definitely driven, that has ideas. And you could say, hey man, if you want to improve, let me help you do X, Y, Z, or let's try this, or let's hone your style, or let's keep your style, whatever it is. Um, All of them pretty much came with me except the coaching. But what I quickly learned is that a lot of that is in people's head. And what I quickly learned is so often we focus on what other people think about us and we allow them to get in our head and manipulate our thoughts. And we put too much stock in what they have to say, and we're all guilty of it, me included. And then I realized that as much as I'm thinking about what they thought of me, they're not even thinking about me that much. And that I'm so egocentric that I think everybody's doing this spinning around me. So it's let it go. If I have two friends, three friends and thousands of acquaintances, great. Not everybody's gonna love me. And why is that important? Because I worked in an industry that's so subjective. You're too tall, you're too short, you have I had hair back there. You too much hair, too little hair, you're too fat, you're too skinny. I hate your brown tie. Whatever it is, doesn't matter. Not everybody's going to love you. And now I just look at it and say, you know what? There's 31 flavors of Baskin-Robbins because not everybody likes vanilla. So it's okay. So the coaching came along with me because I saw a lot of younger people that were struggling with that. And I would see a lot of talent they had. And I'd say, man, you're so talented and you're letting this one thing get you down. Let's get out of your head. You know, let's pretend you're at your home and you're singing in your shower or whatever you're doing. Let's go there content marketing, natural fit, because as a reporter, you're looking at every angle of the story, and then saying, well, for example, you said 911. Well, there's so many angles, you can go the firefighter response, the military response, the people, of course, in the towers, the people in the planes. So there's so many other angles that you can go and so many other things that you can cover. So that came with me. um, Storytelling, naturally crisis management, and the public speaking is because you're constantly learning how to be a presenter. And I'm a student of everything. And I've always watched people's styles and skills. And i studied and studied and studied and got some coaching myself. And then I thought, well, I could do this better than them because I can connect with people individually and teach them. So I tried it. And, you know, the first person uh, I said to them, well, I'm going to give you a free couple hours. Don't pay me if you like it. Just give me a testimonial. And they did. And that helped. And then the media coaching, I reached out to a local congressman that I used to cover and I'd say, Hey, you know, you were always really good, but you know, you were susceptible to this, this, and this, if you don't mind, I want to give you a free coaching hour and share some ideas. And if you like it again, give me a testimonial. So that's how I built the business just on relationships.
1: Mm -hmm. So now uh, diving specifically into crisis management, the nature of our brand now has changed just because, well, not today, but it's, it's been changed for uh, a few years, just you have to have a presence in the social media space. So the challenge, I think, in handling a crisis now compared to, say, the 90s is, you know, it's not just like NBC reporting on a story. People are talking about it on Facebook, on TikTok, they're sending Snapchats that get deleted like right away. So what's been your experience in dealing with crises for, on behalf of clients? Um, well, I mean, you can throw yourself into the mix too, if there's a good example on that, but dealing with crises prior to the onset of social media versus you know, dealing with it on present day
0: a lot easier
1: a lot easier okay that interesting. Easy.
0: a lot easier because think about it social media think about it I mean say for example, you go to school today when I went to school, someone would pick on you, you'd meet by the big tree or the fence or whatever it is, and you'd have it out, and then you were buddies. Uh, now social media follows you everywhere, and there's group chats of how much everybody hates you, and then there's online bullying and all of those things. So what I say to brands now is you've got to speak with one voice. We have to have a plan. First and foremost, let's create a crisis plan. Let's train your team on traditional media and how they're going to bait you into saying something you don't want to say with hypothetical questions and yes or no questions and how certain are you, things along those lines. Next, let's look at our industry and let's create a list of all the potential problems we could have. And let's plan holding statements, meaning simple statements that we can release to the media that address those. It's kind of like a game we used to have called Mad Libs, where you write things and you just fill in the blank will create those statements. Then for social media, it's monitoring everything 24-7. I don't like when customers turn off their uh, comments because that to me is not authentic. So it's important to monitor those, take those conversations offline. So if someone's saying, well, your company did this, this, and this, I'm sorry you feel that way, Mr. Smith. I'm going to DM you to learn more. Because as soon as you get in that fight in the thread, now everybody's going to pile on and it becomes a gang mentality. So, yes, it's become more challenging with social media. And then you have a lot of companies that will just say, well, I don't care what people say. right? they ignore the social media. And then it's knowing which social media channels are where your audience is, which is a whole nother, uh, whole nother issue. So, yes, it's being responsive and really getting on top and saying something right away and making sure you're consistent across all platforms. But more importantly, having the forethought, which I do a lot of as well as training teams to have the forethought to, hey, let's prepare for this. Sure, there's some things you can't prepare for, but let's prepare for, if you're a restaurant, you know, a food illness, that's a layup, or sexual harassment or embezzlement or, you know, an angry parent, as you alluded to. <laughs> but you're not going to prepare for, you know, a car jacket. So you never know.
1: Mm-hmm. Have you ever had people, uh, clients come to you just as an emergency was breaking where they didn't exactly prepare for it and now they need, they need your emergency services? So what is it like, what's it like dealing with that?
0: That's kind of funny, especially when you pitch them on the uh, idea of being proactive. I mean, I'll never need you, Joseph. That's never gonna happen to me. And then six months later, they're like, so you're on our way here and this happened. And you're like, okay, uh, you know, you gotta be humble and respectful and say, here, here's what we're gonna do. So you just go from there and you work with them. But uh, you don't say, I told you so, that's one thing. But yes, I mean, and there's been ones where there's loss of life and there's been ones where the lawyer said we shouldn't say anything. And you're like, well, we should say something. And there's a fine line between saying nothing and saying something. So yes, you run into that as well.
1: And one point I'd like to make and sure, I'm definitely not naming names on this one. Um, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps out of fear. Uh, but I've worked with people blue in the past store? who no, blue store. no, 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 they're, no. they're off the hook. Uh, <laughs> I but I've dealt with people, um, whether in different work settings, and I've, I felt like this has come up more virtually than in person. But there's been in person examples where, like, some people just lose their marbles over the littlest things, like a typo, a spelling error, Ooh. or or an email. Um, sent it to the wrong person. Things that are mistakes and need to be addressed, but by God, their reaction goes from zero to 60. Have you ever been graced with the opportunity to teach somebody to calm down and and handle situations with the grace and fortitude that those situations call for?
0: You know, I've been that guy that's accidentally sent that email or made that mistake. So yeah, I mean, there's nothing there's, you can't say anything that'll make you feel worse than you already feel for doing that. Um, And I've been the guy who's, you know, worked in the restaurant and ruined breakfast for everybody, as the manager told me. Um, So I've been that guy. So, yes, uh, I try to say to that person, hey, you know, we're losing our cool over this. This is our big problem. Think about you and how you acted and now the lingering effects of that that are going to carry on. You can apologize. But is the person going to really accept it and feel it? I mean, you've really broken a relationship. Now you need to rebuild it and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So, yeah, I've absolutely tried to point those things out. Some people are so maniacal in their approach and they have giant egos, as you alluded to earlier. Do you know who you're talking to? That you're not going to make a dent, but others are like, you know what? I'm open to it. So it's when you do it, they are losing their cool and I talk to CEOs and they're losing their cool and I'll wait and they'll say, Hey, you know what? Reflecting on this, how would you feel if that was your son? And then, uh, you know, hits home. And then it's, okay, well, he needs to learn the lesson. Okay, but how do you think your son would feel? Because they're about the same age, so how do you think he'd feel? And then it's like, oh, okay. And that helps bring it home.
1: The, the The case study question is something that I always like asking, but I'm always like conscious of client confidentiality. But if there's any particular stories uh, within this, it's up to you if you want to name the name or not, but I'd love to hear about, a story that sticks out, and just how you had to go through that process.
0: You can't really. It's hard to tell the story because of NDAs, that you right? Signed, yeah, non-disclosure agreements. So it wouldn't have the same flair if you didn't describe the store and the setting as a storyteller, and what went on and how what was going on behind the scenes. So it doesn't have that same flair. So unfortunately, I can't give that to you. Um, but what I can say to you is. When it comes to crisis, you know it when you see it, you know, if you think of United Airlines, what they did a few years back when they uh, said they needed four seats and they chose four random people to quote reaccommodate. And then you see these pictures coming from the plane, uh, people snapping these photos, the guy being dragged off and he's, you know, with two people holding his arms and two people holding his feet. It doesn't look reaccommodated to me. So, you know, they shoot themselves in the foot, particularly when the CEO, in that case, I believe, waited 18 hours before responding, not even in a news conference, but in a Twitter feed, in a Twitter post. So it's like, okay, come on. So, yeah, those are things that you see where you just want to smack some logic in their head. Uh, because by then, the damage is done.
1: I used to uh, say this, not that I don't believe in it anymore. I still believe in it, but I just haven't articulated it too often. But I think apologies really come in three levels. Level one is just saying sorry, which is I can't correct this, it's out of my control, but I'm but I empathize. Level two is I apologize. Um, correcting correcting it is not just part of me, it's 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 a larger effort, but you know, I, I do apologize and we want this to be better. And then level three is this will never happen again. And I think once you get to level three, that's when I, like when I say that that's because I really know I screwed up and I and it is fully on me to, to fix it and correct it and, and and I think it's important to understand that like there are different levels of empathy that you need to express you don't need to go full level three every time sometimes just a sorry just you know I understand I'm sorry this was a mistake you know I didn't mean it something like
0: that well that shows that you're a big man right away that you have the ability to apologize um, which is a great first step when you look it at it it just shows I'm Canadian. <laughs> Uh, so when you look at companies, yeah, you guys are always, that's funny. I was just there and they were like, yeah, we apologize overly for everything, even things we didn't do. And, um, you look at companies, I always tell them treat it like Tylenol, 1982 Tylenol had the number one painkiller out there. What happened? The top of the bottle used to be something that you could just flip off and people went in and they put cyanide in the bottles and seven people killed, were killed and Tylenol didn't say it wasn't our fault. They pulled all the product off the shelves, hundred million dollars worth. And then they went and reintroduced the product to the hospitals and the doctors, reassuring them that it wasn't their fault. Then they coupon the whole world, send us back your old product and we'll send you a coupon for a new one. And people could send back a shampoo and they still got a coupon. And then they introduced the triple resistant tamper proof packaging that you couldn't open up without a knife. So what did they say? Here's the problem. Here's what we did to address it. Here's what we did to make sure it never happens again. So it's going that one further step. So you're right. With human apology, it's hey, here's what I've learned, and here's how I'm working on it to make sure that I can do better.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Corey, we're we're pretty close to the hour mark. I'm probably going to need you for for a few more minutes, uh, just because whatever you'd like. Uh, really appreciate, really appreciate your time and your your expertise and your feedback too. Um, you know, it's not every day that I talk to someone who's got a lot of interviewing experience, so it's always good to uh, learn what I can learn. Um, th- this one is just—it's uh, not crisis management. We're moving on. So, with <laughs> with presentation training, this is one that I wanted to ask towards the end because it's nice and actionable. But you know, you mentioned about channeling nerves and we love talking about anxiety we love talking about feeling the fear and working through it and i liked the idea of channeling the nerves almost like you can transmute that energy into something actionable so can you describe to us how channeling it actually works and how much people might be able to start working on this even today
0: absolutely great question And by the way you did an outstanding job so i will say to you that there's numerous ways. Like I know that I have a dry sense of humor, that I'm witty and I give a lot of speeches. So before I get up there, I still get this feeling of anxiety and nerves. And I start to sweat a little bit. And what do I do? I open up my phone and I look at a few pictures and almost like an athlete, I put all my AirPods and I'm listening to some songs that will take my mind off something. And then I say, well, I'm not going to open up and say, hi, my name is cause they don't care. I'm going to open up and I'm going to give them a feeling, tell them a joke that's relatable hey, you know, if you think about it, you know, how many of you watch the news? It's the only place that starts with the words, good evening, and then spends 30 minutes telling you why it's not. And then you get a little bit of a laugh. And now the audience gave you that reaction, you feel more comfortable, and you're off and running. So right away, that's channeling the nerves. I always say it's powerful to open up with a powerful statistic, anecdote, or a joke, if you have that ability. I keep it simple, of course, nothing too racy. And, right away, you'll get that feedback from the audience, the emotion or three out of four will have this happen. Will it be you? And boom. And now they're thinking and then you get into your topic, no matter what it is. So that's channeling the nerves in a smart and efficient way. I also say uh, to get away from the podium and to walk and talk because that allows you to get rid of the nervous energy and then use your hands because your brain can only do one thing at a time. And if you're talking and you're like this and your hands are clasped, you're just nervous as heck. But if you're up there and you're like, hey, today I'm going to tell you about three things. And the first thing is this, 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 et cetera. Now your brain is thinking about those movements.
1: Uh, You reminded me of this one joke. I'm pretty sure this was in high school because I don't think someone would have made this joke at a Catholic elementary school. But the presenter said that a good uh, speech should be like a skirt, um, long enough to cover what's important, but short enough to keep you paying attention. That had to have been a high school joke because there's no way she would have said that in elementary
0: school. (laughs) I would agree with that. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good
1: one. Yeah, Yeah. it's about uh, uh, right on the money on that one. So the last couple of things that I wanted to uh, just uh, learn from you before we we wrap up. The first one is in terms of your, your, your services, what do you feel like are the challenges that uh, your platform is facing right now? Getting your message out, ranking on Google, whatever it is you feel like you need to work on next. What are your, what are your big projects?
0: My biggest project right now is culture. I've become fascinated by culture and reading and learning and going into these companies and seeing how they're treating people and what the people have to say, you know, whenever you go to a company or you're interviewing for a job, what do they do? They introduce you to the people who are most happy. So I like to talk to those people who are disenfranchised and I'm going in and trying to create culture initiatives to try to help them try to solve that problem and the story of mental health as you alluded to is something that fascinates me. And what can we do to address those concerns, to help employees to feel more welcome and accepted amongst their peers and with one another and to fit into this company? Um, most of my business is referral. I mean, people just will hear about me or they'll take a shot in csmediaworks.com and go there. Uh, but it's not like I'm spending money on pay-per-click and saying, you know, call me, I'll help you with their presentation because not it's not one size fits all. It's you work with certain people that you jive with. Mm -hmm.
1: And then the final question before the official wrap up is um, for the next five years, would you say that culture is your, your main focus or do you have a vision for where else you want to see things go within the next five years?
0: You know, I'm really focused on culture and mental health and that's where I am today and that evolution, you know, hit me within the last year or two and relationships. You know, I just went through a leadership course with 53 other people that were accepted into this program that was a year long. People that I never would have met. We went through this course on a journey together for a year uh, and it fascinated me in numerous ways and sparking the creativity in me to know that everybody's got a story and to understand where they're coming from and acceptance and belief and creativity. So mental health was a theme that kept playing over and over and over. And another theme was, Hey, not everybody's going to go to college. There's importance for, you know, trade schools. And those two things really jumped out at me along with the culture. So that's where I am today. And just saying, Hey, what difference can we make? How can I give back to Mm -hmm. make a difference? So that's where I am today.
1: Love to hear it. Uh, All right, Corey. Well, like I've said, this was, um, this is an hour of your time that i that I really appreciate and value. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up. If you have any lingering thoughts or reactions or anything or anything else you want to get out of your system, feel free. otherwise let the audience know where they can find you.
0: You got it. Well, fantastic job, Joseph. It was wonderful speaking with you. I've done a lot of these, and uh, I felt very welcome, very comfortable, and you're very good at what you do. If you're interested, audience, you can find me at CS, my initials, Corey Sabin, at MediaWorks.com, or check me out on LinkedIn or Instagram, whatever it may be. But thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for the time.
1: Thank you as well. All right, to my audience, um, <laughs> once once more, uh, fully aware of the tonal shift, and if you think I'm going to not do that in the future, you are mistaken, because I love that stuff. Uh, I lo- I love the idea of just making sure that if I'm going to do something, I do it my way and I have my own unique imprint on it. So thank you for all of you who give me the platform to do that. This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. It is our endeavor to make sure that whatever it is you aspire to do, that you are impactful while you're at it.